Coming up on this week's show, one of the biggest FPS games ever arrives on the Spectrum. A game that defined a generation comes to the Switch. And we go inside Infocom with Mike Dornbrook. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our amazing pals at Bitmap Books. Now, you need to check out their brand new book. Just landed. Pre-orders begin on November 14th. I'm Too Young to Die, the ultimate guide to first-person shooters, covering that incredible genre from 1992 to 2002 and celebrating more than 180 games. We'll tell you more about that in just a bit, and you can check out the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay, now you know PCBWay, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service. They have low cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding, and they're huge supporters of the retro community. So you can get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 351, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to our first show of November. Clocks have changed here in the UK. Even though we're recording this at like half nine, it feels so late. Don't you think? Oh my God, is that, is that, I thought it was like 11 o'clock. It's been a long night. It's been a long day. You know, I didn't well. even notice because all the modern devices just change the clocks automatically. So you kind of just switched into a time zone. Apart from you've always got that one clock in your house, which is like, it, for, for me, you it's know, the, windable. Oh. Yeah, it's the cooker clock for me. Talking about devices that did it, my Amiga 1200, I noticed change of time automatically the other day. I've got a little, must have some tool in there oh, that wow. you know, sync the time automatically. <laughs> so pretty impressed with that. But I mean, obviously we're now into November. Those darker nights are here and uh, a good time to, you know, snuggle in, get the heating on. If, if you can afford it in your part of the world, we can't hear. Um, and just play some classic video games. And this show celebrates all of that. I mean, everything from the Commodore 64 to the Sinclair Spectrum, the Sega Mega Drive to the Super Nintendo, the N64 to the PS1, all of that. And actually, sometimes we go really old school. Like in this week's show. Now, it's not very often that we get guests on where we think they need a good two hours to tell their career story. But this week and next week is definitely one of those examples because we're going to go real old school and get the story in this part of our interview of Infocom. Now, if we're talking about legendary early video games companies, they do not come much bigger than Infocom. Yeah, they're absolutely huge. And like today, we're going to be talking about text adventures as well, a a subject that I really love to talk about. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a genre that's kind of making a little bit of a comeback at the moment. Um, but Infocom were the original kind of crew that were behind it when text adventures were on mainframes and then they were going into personal computers. So we're, we're talking to Mike Dornbrook and uh, he's going to be telling us all about Zork, which is a absolutely legendary title. And uh, there was one bit where he's telling us about, you know, the administrators getting really annoyed because uh, everyone was playing Zork on the mainframes when they should have been doing work. 
He's got a really interesting story. I mean, we're going to be doing this interview in two parts. I mean, today we're going to be talking about those days when he was at Infocom, um, how he kind of became a, one of their first, I guess, you know, one of the first beta testers in the industry, really, before moving to work with them full time and then working with, you know, the likes of Douglas Adams on games like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, setting up their user groups and community groups and that kind of thing. And that journey from, like you mentioned, the kind of underground world of video games when it started on university mainframes into getting these games into stores and then porting them to home computers. So that early part of his career is going to be the focus of this week's episode. And then after that, he had, you know, a massive second chapter to his career when he worked for Harmonix and, of course, brought us games like Guitar Hero and Rock Band. So I think he'll agree, quite an accomplished career. Yeah, what a varied so career. That, as well, starting with text adventures and going to rhythm games. It's, it's like, such, yeah, it's such a varied career and, like, it blew my mind when you guys said that you had him on and then Dan was like, oh yeah, he worked on Guitar Hero and then he moved to Rock Band, which is obviously in part two. And I was a massive Guitar Hero fan, you know, like 15 mm. years ago, 17 years ago. And I was just like, that, that story there has absolutely like baffled me and like blown my mind. So I'm really, really excited to hear this two-part episode. And like also Zork is just such a legendary title. You know, we have a lot of people and when they come on the podcast, they refer to either Colossal Cave Adventure or Zork as being like their first video game experience when we talk about, you know, the initial titles. So uh, absolutely groundbreaking. And even the fact that he mentions wherever he goes in the world, you'll generally meet someone who knows either Zork or Guitar Hero or Rock Band. Mm. You know, if you'll meet a group of 10 people, always be someone in there, you know, when they ask what he's done. Um, they're the just games that became part of everyday life really aren't yeah, they pop know, culture kind of guitar hero was yeah, yeah you know everybody my mum who has absolutely no idea about games you know still tells me to turn the sega off there's even a zork planet in ready player one and uh you know i think both of them were referenced on the big bang theory as well so yeah some really interesting stuff yeah so you're going to really enjoy this the first of our epic two-part interview with industry legend mike dornbrook he'll be on the show in around 25 minutes from now and actually it's quite timely that we've got mike on the show this week because he's actually just worked on a re-release which is a 25 year anniversary of one game that he worked on called the space bar now that's actually just been re-released now so we'll find out kind of what the story is there he worked with their steve moretzky on that and it's uh it's 25 year anniversary re-release has just dropped today when this episode comes out so um i'll obviously link that up in the show notes and we'll hear more about that with mike will be on the show in just a bit but of course before we do that we like to bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last seven days and i think it's fair to say it's been another manic week it's a packed episode this week so let's jump straight into this now i remember friends of mine at school who had pcs some of them would ask their parents if they could upgrade from a 286 to a 386 maybe even a 486 so they could play doom nice and smoothly on their machine and then when we got to like 95 ish oh we need to upgrade all over again the pentium's out now i want to play quake and Quake all seemed like a really demanding title for the time. I must admit, I never thought I'd see the day that Quake was running on the lowly ZX Spectrum. Yeah, this is a uh, majorly impressive. Like, actually, we've seen a like little alpha demo of it running at the moment, um, and it seems like it's just the kind of engine, a 3D engine around it. But it really reminds me. We recently had an interview um, with Incentive Software, so that was a three four five with Paul Gregory. And, you know, they were doing 3D stuff on the Spectrum as well. And 
I don't know much about the spectrum, but it's a real interesting thing to see these kind of 3D worlds and, uh, you know, it's it's 3D abilities for such a limited system. I would agree with you there, like a 3D world. I'm relatively familiar with Quake. I, you know, completed the re-release of it, you know, the HD remaster of it last year. And, you know, <laughs> at a glance, would I say this is Quake? I don't know, <laughs> you know, like if if I hadn't read the headline, um, but still really impressive to see it running on the Spectrum um, and also on the ZX Spectrum. Also really cool that uh, it is playable as in like, you know, you can go ahead and download it and actually run it on your original hardware. Um, so it's been brought together by two coders. So a lone coder and also Dragon's Lord have put this out. So they're saying it works on the three, the five, the seven and the 14 megahertz but the 7 and 14 megahertz versions it will run faster on i'm not a specky guy i'm not too sure what that means to me but slow machines slow slow machines but it will run on the slower ones it's saying um, which is pretty cool um but you will get less flaws as well um on the slower on the slower machines it says that was always a thing they did back in the day yeah you take off the floor and ceiling of fps games to make them run a bit smoother oh okay that's pretty cool so. And yeah, there's like literally no war textures or anything. But what do you expect? You know, it's got some nice shading and stuff. And and I'm amazed about the actual movement. He's got these bouncing blobs in there, which are pretty cool because <laughs> it shows animation. You know, there's no enemies or anything going around. And uh, I think it, they're it, meant. Well, I think that they're meant to be the em- enemies from. Quake, they're meant I think. to be you know, the enemies from s- like the first couple of levels. Squint. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you squint and look at them you, a bit. Yeah. If you squint and look at them with your sunglasses on, maybe. But yeah, it's all in black and white. But, you know, I've got to keep reminding myself that this is running on original hardware ZX Spectrum. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, it's not that impressive bit of a 3D engine. But then you're like, wait, even a 3D engine on the ZX Spectrum is really yeah. impressive. This is a 40-year-old computer we're looking yeah. at this on. And that's the thing. I mean, even seeing first-person shooters running on, like, the Amiga back in the day was jaw-dropping. Mm. The fact that someone's got, you know, it's not texture, but it is shaded. 3D objects, a 3D maze that you can walk around with some animated enemies in there, I think is a massive feat of programming. So it is only a demo that you can download at the moment and, uh, you know, they're working on it all the time. But I think yeah, just seeing an FPS game running this smoothly, because I mean, it does play very smooth for a Spectrum. And there is a free download link if you want to check out the, the demo in progress so far and a YouTube video that I'll put in our show notes as well. You'll find that in your podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, one thing I loved back in the day is getting a nice, hefty manual mm. with my video games. And obviously, it's nothing we get anymore. I mean, God, you're lucky to even get the game on a physical edition now. Uh, I saw a YouTube video today talking about the, the latest Call of Duty game, that if you buy the physical edition on the PlayStation 5, it has a file on there that is a whopping 80 megabytes. Oh, wow. Literally, it's a key just to unlock it and download it off a server. So you don't even get the game on the disc anymore. Never mind the manual. You're looking to get a bit of paper in there. But even going back to, like, I'd say the PlayStation 2 era was probably the last time that we got a decent manual bundled in the box with games, wasn't it? Uh, 360, the next generation, yeah, was probably where it started to really phase out. But, yeah, the sixth generation PS2, GameCube, Xbox, that was probably the last gen where it was, like, it was expected. And then after that, it started to become a bit like, oh, there's no manual. Yeah. But yeah, that, that segues really nicely into this. And we actually covered a similar story a couple of months ago uh, to this, where somebody had uploaded um, the entire SNES library of manuals yeah. and artwork onto, you know, onto an archive. But this is the PS2 
um, archive. So it's every single US PlayStation 2 manual um, on archive.org in full 4K resolution. And I think it's just under 2,000 games on there. And it's been done by, from what I understand, one guy. So the Super Nintendo one was a bit of a collective. Um, and maybe that's because it was harder to get that many games. Maybe, you know, to get every single Super Nintendo game. It's a hot, it's an older console, older hardware. The PS2, this guy, maybe he's been collecting it for a long time because of he goes on record to say that he actually scanned them all in himself one by one in his own home printer. Um, that's crazy. Home scanner, which is just like, as a project, that is just insane. And just an absolute labour of love. And, you know, a little bit of me was a bit like, oh my God, like he had to take the staples out of every manual and kind of take the manuals apart to scan them in and stuff mm. like that. But I think the end result, you sure you'll agree, does look really, really good. Even doing that, even going through and taking the staples out of our 1,900 manuals, that's got to be a bit of a bit of pain on the fingers after a while. Oh yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, <laughs> even just typing this up, and just like yeah. uploading them all and stuff, it just like it just looks absolutely insane. I mean, I think he said it took him seven years to do this or something like that. I can believe it. Um, but you know, the website, I'm on it now, and I'm just looking at stuff, and it, it, it's perfect. Like every single game. I mean, I know it's the US games, but I'm not too sure how how much of the difference there was between like Japanese and PAL and stuff like that. But like any game I can think of, you know, such as Katai Rock Band. You know, speaking of today's guest. Um, they're just they're all on there like it's crazy he makes a good point here he says like in future I'd like to have AI uh, do some reconstruction of text and maybe images and also remove like the staple holes and stuff like that Um, because he's had to clean up a lot of stuff Mm. like you know when he scanned it he's had to put it into like Photoshop or something and uh, play around with it. Yeah, I can imagine AI and uh, yeah. a way of loading it would probably speed up this whole yeah. process. Yeah, I mean, he uploaded just last year alone 75,000 pages. So yeah, if you're cleaning that up yourself, that that's a full-time job. I don't know how he's done this. Maybe it is his full-time job. <laughs> well, the entire collection comes in at 230 gigabytes before compression. Oh, wow. He's uploaded them all to uh, archive.org, of course, um, in full 4K resolution. I think it's a very useful service as well, because, I mean, I've generally bought a lot of kind of secondhand PS2 games. I definitely went through an era of buying them, Mm. probably around five, six years ago. And I'd say probably half the ones I bought secondhand just didn't have the manuals in there anymore. Well, if you've got like, uh, you know, a PS2 with a hard drive in there or something, and you're loading stuff onto there, or you've got... And EverDrive, you know, stuff like this is essential. Um, also, back in the days when you used to get um, naughty copied games, uh, a lot of people wouldn't have the manuals as well. So, you know, you forget how important they are. Like, yeah, man- manuals have all the all the info in there. So, uh, yeah, this is this is pretty awesome. And I think the fact that he's done, he's now done, you know, the the collection, the entire US collection for the biggest selling console ever. Anything after that's got to be an easier job. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. He's already done the hard one. So if you want to check those out, they're available for free right now. Uh, Every US PlayStation 2 manual scanned in 4K on archive.org. And I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, there are not many games that a generation has been named after. But you guys may have heard of the the Oregon Trail generation. Generally a thing in America, uh, talking about kids that went to school in the early to late 80s who grew up on the game the Oregon Trail. Now, it wasn't as popular over here, but we're definitely aware of it in video game culture. 
I mean, it's kind of the equivalent as to, you know, I guess Granny's Garden was to kids that went to school here in the UK and played on the BBC Micro. But the Oregon's Trail, obviously a legendary game. And I think, you know, we've had a lot of guests on as well. They all talk about having Apple IIs back in the day and playing this game. And I think it is definitely, you'd say, up there in the most legendary titles of all time. I've not actually played it myself, but I do know it has that kind of legendary status as well. And you're right, it does seem very very kind of American focus, but I'd, I'd love to actually have a go on it and uh, check it out. Am I right in thinking it started off on like the Apple II and like um, systems like that or uh, the uh, TRS-80 as well, which was a, a very popular system in the States? Yeah, and I've got a C64 port as well. I think it was on a lot of things back in the day. Um, very popular game stateside. And obviously it's kind of best known for, you know, the, the player dying of dysentery. <laughs> That's kind of the, the meme that's came out, come out of the game in, uh, in more recent years. But now it turns out if you've ever been curious about the game or you've got strong memories of playing the Oregon Trail at school, they're now re-releasing a new updated version that is in many ways a bit of a sequel to it on the PC and the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, they've, they've really overhauled and revamped the graphics because I'm the same as Ravi. I've never played the Oregon Trail, but um, I've heard of it and I know, you know, kids in america played it in school and it was the story of them going across america wasn't it and you kind of have to yeah you it's an early like i don't want to say real time yeah but it's just an early strategy game isn't it as well you have to like focus on like all your your, your food and your farming and stuff like that i believe um, apparently probably um, why they use it in schools i guess because it was yeah that education well apparently 65 million copies were sold of it as well there you go which yeah. is <laughs> yeah you know a lot of people would have been touched by that game yeah yeah so um, it'd be interesting to see if this makes its way into schools and stuff like that. And I'd like to quite give it a bash myself on the Switch because the only versions I've seen of it are like you say, like sort of C64. And I, I want to say an original Nintendo copy of it I've seen as well. And, you know, it's that really old school, like top down pixelated map and you kind of pick where you're going and stuff like that. So seeing it with this kind of like modern cell shaded kind of like indie style graphics i know that's a bit of a broad thing to say um but it does look cool and it's an educational game and i want to play it so that says something about it well again this new version of it they're promising it's going to be a bit of a successor to the original game with a modern twist on the trials and tribulations on the original road to oregon um with 15 playable journeys seven quests inspired by historical events and that will take the player on accelerating journeys, according to the publisher. And uh, yeah, it's coming out on Steam and Nintendo Switch some point in November, apparently. I, so, I was uh, wondering, you know, they they need to include the original, right? You know, they could probably just fit that in <laughs> this whole It doesn't title. say anything about no, that. I'm not yeah, sure whether they have. Maybe not with licensing or something. Maybe they've got a license to do a, a new version. But I must say, like, looking at some of the footage, it looks really well done, like the... um parallax and stuff looks pretty beautiful and uh, i kind of like the effects on there as well i think it'll it'll fit the switch quite well and uh hopefully bring it to a new generation and i think as well it just kind of feels like one of those titles which you know i'm with you guys because you know it wasn't really that popular over here from what what i remember when i was a kid i've never actually played it either and it kind of feels like you know when you talk about I'd say Oregon's trail if you're talking about maybe the top 20 best known video games in history it will probably be in there and I kind of feel like as a gamer, it's something I probably should have played at we, some point. We should do an episode on it and actually, you know, get down and kind of learn this whole title. Although I'm quite worried the fact that it generally was played by like six, seven-year-old kids in school. 
if we turn out to be terrible at it, what's, what's that going to do for It'll our probably career? be too hard for you anyway, Dan. That's... I was going to say, Mr's only ever completed like three games, so <laughs> <laughs> you've already lost your streak, cred, Dan. <laughs> I said less than 10. I didn't specify three, Joe. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if you want to check that out, it should be available at some point this month, they reckon, and I'll link that up in our show notes as well. I'm going to talk about another incredible collection for um, the Nintendo Switch, if you play there. Uh, the Samurai games back in the day on the Super Nintendo C64 as well, and one of the best <laughs> Commodore 64 mods if you're into Sid music. We need to talk about this in just a sec. Before we do that, though, just a quick reminder that we know we're getting into that time of year when everything gets very expensive and you might have you know, Christmas presents to buy and the bills are going up and everything. But just a reminder that, you know, this podcast, we put it out free every single Friday for you. And this show will always be free. But if you can spare a couple of pounds, a couple of dollars, a couple of euros into helping us keep the lights on and keep bringing out this show every single Friday, any support we get on our Patreon makes such a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I say it every week and I'm probably a little bit of a broken record, but we really, really are thankful that, you know, people support us and that we are managing to keep the show going, um, you know, keep the lights on in the studio, if you will. Um, but we don't just, you know, take, take, take. We do like to try and give back. We do do every month for every tier. Any tier that you join does get you access to our hangout that we do on the last Sunday of every month. Now, I've heard this one was actually the busiest one we've ever had. And unfortunately, um, <laughs> we've been doing this now for about two years, the hangout. And it was the first one I've ever missed because of my new job. I have to work the odd night shift. And it was my night shift on the Sunday just gone. But yeah, I heard it was a really, really good one. I wonder if there's a connection there. Yeah, maybe. They knew I wasn't going to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did. We had a load of new faces on. Um, quite a few people from America dropped in as well that we hadn't seen before. So that was awesome. We had Dave who's up in the Northeast who came on for the first time as well. So it's always nice to see new faces. And uh, I think you'll agree. We're a very friendly bunch, aren't we? We've got a great group of people on there. Um, and we just completely nerd out. I mean, what kind of things were we talking about this week, Joe, uh, Ravi? Uh, we were talking about Chernobyl. <laughs> for quite a while oh, wow. and uh yeah, that kind of stuff much. but also the games that were like influenced by that and uh you know there was a whole kind of history uh stalker as well which was uh one of the one of the great russian films that came out and uh you know some games were influenced by that as well and horror games horror games yeah horror yeah um we were talking about absolutely everything as well but guitar hero chat as well yeah, so, I mean, we just nerd out for a couple of hours on the last Sunday of every month. And if you join us on Patreon now, of course, you'll get an invite to November's Patrons Hangout. We also do, for our gold members and above, an exclusive monthly podcast called The Retro Hour After Hours. And uh, we've just recorded the latest episode of that. So if you join us this week, you'll get hold of that. And we're talking about our favourite console add-ons in this one. This was a fun one to do. Yeah, this was really fun. And uh, you know what? I actually, I actually struggled to pick my top five on this one. And I actually had to reach out to a couple of friends and a couple of friends at work and say, you know, what were your favorite ever like video game add-ons? And I really got a load of the lads there really scratching their brains, you know, shouting out some really cool suggestions. And then uh, I thought, you know, I'd heard them all from that. And then I came on to record with you guys and some of the stuff you came out with just like brought back so many memories and also blew my mind and also educated me a little bit. So it was really, really fun. 
Yes, we dedicated a full episode to talking about our top five console add-ons of all time, so you can uh, unlock that right now. And uh, 29 episodes of the After Hours podcast, plenty of listening. So if you join us on Patreon, you get access to all of those as well. You get the normal show ad-free each week. We do extra patrons-only content in there. We try and get out early to you if we can as well. So we give a lot back. And, of course, for joining us on Patreon, uh, we'll give you a shout in the Hall of Fame, uh, hopefully on next week's show. I've um, been a bit quiet on Patreon this week, but if you'd like to join us, all the details are at the theretrohour.com. Uh, we hugely appreciate your support and actually a very good time to join us because uh, we're coming up to the end of the year. You know what that means, boys? Bill renewal time, website hosting, all of that coming up in January. So um, if you can help us out, now's a very good time to do it. Now, before we get into our guest this week going inside Infocom with Mike Dornbrook, did you ever play the um, the Samurai games back in the day, Ravi? Uh, yeah, I played First Samurai, which was uh, on the Amiga, which was an absolutely awesome title by... Um, do you remember Mev Dink, who we've had on the podcast before? And, uh, and Raphael Seco as well? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Vivid Image, that, that that was the publisher. But um, this was this was a really good one because The Last Ninja kind of came out at the time and uh, First Samurai was like a nice alternative. Like, I always remember the graphics were really, really high-end and uh, had beautiful backgrounds. Um, it wasn't as kind of atmospheric, you know, but the playability on there was a uh, uh, really high up. You know, a lot of people absolutely love this, and I love that whole kind of fantasy world. I didn't play any of the later Samurai games, though. Yeah, I played um, Second Samurai's one. I played more. Um, I th- I've got to film my brother at First Samurai on the Commodore sixty four, but I-, I played Second Samurai more on the Amiga. And again, like you said, then I, I love the look of these games. I didn't even. I mean, the name kind of gives it away, but I just thought it was a quirky name. I never knew there was a first samurai. I just knew there was a second samurai <laughs> for the Mega Drive. Um, and it, it, it looks like a quirky game, to be fair. You know, I I, mm. I hate, like, I don't want to brand it as that, but it has got that real Amiga and Atari ST look to it. Yeah, I kind totally. of associate yeah. in my head. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got the uh, blitter effects in the background, you know, the... Uh kind of nice gradients and stuff yeah, yeah. and yeah. It, it does look very amiga definitely it's one of the titles that really shone graphically on the system yeah absolutely so this is getting ported to the switch isn't it a uh a pack with both of them on which comes it should be out now actually, be out yeah. now because it's coming out on the 3rd of november um so it would have come out yesterday um if you're listening to this on the day of release um i've never i've never played them they look good they, they look yeah fun. yeah that's yeah, really good fun. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how the music changes on the other ones as well. Uh, like, because the Amiga, you always, stuff always felt a bit plain, but um, I don't know if, you know, that's kind of what ports they've actually used for this. So. I've got a feeling it's a SNES port. Okay. Okay. The first one looks like, I mean, it looks like an Amiga game and it mentions the Amiga game in the description on the website. So I'm looking at, mm. it looks like it is the Amiga one, which is pretty cool. Um, and it is coming out on Xbox and PlayStation as well, you know, PS4 and 5 and Xbox Series X and 1, um, which is cool as well. So not just the Switch. I might have to pick this one up because, I, you know, I, I love my Sega Mega Drive games and I've not got Second Samurai, and this might be a cheaper, more accessible way to play it. Yeah, it's, it's only eight ninety nine. Oh wow, it's a pretty decent price. Yeah, that yeah. is a good price, actually, for these, you know, re-release games. And you know I love my, uh, my uh, retro on new hardware. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's a great platformer game. I mean, yeah, it's a bit of a hack and slash kind of game, really. I mean, from from memory, there are some quite gory scenes in it as well. Um, but I mean, for that price, for two games, you can't get, really go wrong. So um, that should be available now by the time the show comes out. Um, £8.99 or €9.99. Euros. The Samurai Collection, if you're a fan of those classic games, definitely worth picking up this week. Now, you keep going on about this to me, Joe, and I thought, right, let's get this in the news this week. <laughs> so you wanted to talk about this uh, this bizarre Commodore 64 music instrument that's been made by a YouTuber. I mean, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea how he's made this. And not only has he made this, made it, like, sound amazing as well. So uh, this is a YouTuber who's made a uh, Commodorean, uh, which <laughs> is um, two Commodores kind of hybridly mutated fused together to make a fully functioning musical accordion and it works really well doesn't it dan do you want to hear a bit of it yeah okay this is what it sounds like so this is office video Now, the clicky noise you can hear is actually him pressing the keys on the Commodore 64 that he's got in his right hand. And they're linked. I mean, you know, you normally get the bellows yeah. on an accordion. They're actually floppy disks. Yeah. He's um, he's, what he's actually done is he's, he's taken the uh, two keyboards and he's got some kind of bridge going between them. So, so he is actually playing them and... Uh, it is going into the C64 and using the SID chip. Like, the Commodorean uh, is, is pretty amazing, and that's what he's actually uh, named his channel. Oh, my God, this is this is amazing. The, what he's actually done is he's linked to C64s, or at least the keyboards. I can't quite work out the technology here. but um, yeah, The whole thing's in there, apparently. The whole thing's in there. So yeah. he's got a bridge board between them or some kind of board that's linking both of them and then he's playing with the SID chips there. I don't know how they mix or how they kind of clash. Uh he's 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 pretty interesting. He seems to be doing a few um C sixty four ones like previously we wanted to talk about the Ferramin as well that you did as well. So that's another one that you can check. Um which which is amazing because he uses a spoon um, to kind of create a pheromone on the uh, C64. So I wonder what instruments this guy's going to come up with I, again, I mean, like next. I mean, my I don't know how true this is. I can't play the accordion. But my dad's always told me the accordion is like the hardest instrument to play in the world. Or one of the hardest instruments. And You need some strong yeah, arms to play the accordion. And my dad's dad, so my grandfather, he, he, was, he was a musician and he could play like anything. And he could play the accordion. And he used to always say it was like the hardest instrument he you know, to play. But as you guys say, what's amazing about this is the bellows in the middle, in the middle, which are made out of floppy disks, aren't just for show. So one side controls the melody, one keyboard controls the melody, while the other is playing the chords, and then the bellows in the in, in the middle determine the volume um mm. of the actual the volume and the pitch of it. Like which I guess is it's not too far away from a real accordion, so it's not for show or anything like that. It actually yeah. works. And which- he's got um, a microphone on one end, and then it goes into a DAC, which is digital um, audio converter. Mm. And uh, that kind of adds all the signals together and then outputs it at once. So I guess the out- outside microphone is also doing some extra work on that. But um, that is some spectacular work, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and if you want to check out the video, I mean, it's like 12 minutes long and he kind of talks you through the entire process. 
of how he's done it and um, plenty of demos in there too. Even stuff that he's, he's took into account, like um, they don't use normal power connectors because obviously if you're putting it on your knee, if you're playing it sitting down, you don't want these you know, power cables digging into your lap. All right, yeah. So he's actually wired them up internally as well and the, the audio output's picked up directly from the motherboard. So uh, the thing about it is, I mean, it looks really cool, but the really impressive bit is how functional it is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how like sturdy it is because it's it's kind of made out of floppy disks and bits of wood but um yeah if you know what you're doing that's pretty amazing and i think the next project he should do is a light harp um with a c64 so you know you, you have light that you kind of hit in the air and then make some amazing music there's a project for you ravi this week <laughs> no i'm not gonna start doing instruments <laughs> DJ's enough. So, uh, yeah, if you want to check out this, his channel, I mean, he's done, like Ravi mentioned, several other Commodore 64 musical mods as well that are very impressive. I'll, I'll link that up. And all the rest of the stories, you don't have to Google around if you hear us talk about something. You'll find them all on your podcast app or just head to our website. Check out the episode link at theretrohour.com. Obviously, we're all thinking about, you know, Christmas presents for our family and all that. Maybe you get to this time of year. I don't know if your wife's the same, Joe. Well, your mum starts asking you, what do you want for Christmas? And every year I'm like, oh, I don't know. Well, funny you should say that because my wife has asked me already and she says, you're not having any games. You've got enough games. So you can never have too many. Well, well, she's saying I've got too many. So how about some books about games, eh? Oh, yeah. what there about that for a link? I'll get in there. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we're talking about books, of course, it is our incredible sponsor, our great friends at Bitmap Books, and their new book looks like one of their best to date. Now, you can pre-order this right now, and it starts shipping in just a couple of weeks on the 14th of November. And this is I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to first-person shooters. Now, this spans the FPS from, you know, right in the early days of like Wolfenstein 3D and Doom when they came along, completely changed the industry. And it goes up to 2002. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, 10 years. But there are actually 180 games that they explore in here that defined that genre. And you think of that gap between like, you know, the original Wolfenstein 3D coming out to stuff like, you know, Half-Life and going through... Goldeneye, and obviously we had Halo coming out, and Quake, and Deus Ex, all of those games. So it was definitely, if you're going to explore the history of first-person shooters, that decade is definitely where you want to focus. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and you know, it is essentially the first decade of, you know, the first-person shooters, kind of like you say, from like mm. Wolfenstein and Doom onwards. And it's just a really, really cool, fun insight of those kind of like 10 years of that genre, which is now just like absolutely colossal, you know, with like Halo and call of duty and stuff like that but just kind of see like the roots of it all and you know how it kind of developed over those 10 years is really really interesting and you know it's it's physical it's physical media you know it's really really good quality and as always with bitmap books it is an absolutely beautiful book with absolutely beautiful artwork yeah it's literally a work of art their books they're gorgeous and um, there's also legends in here as well you know if we're talking about first person shooters john romero 
he does it the forward in the book as well. They've got the legends in there like Ian and Chris Andrew, the, the Freescape game, Scott Miller from Apogee and 3D Realms, David Doak, of course, GoldenEye and Time Splitters, and many more as well. So that is available now. A 424-page gorgeous hardback book printed to their usual high standards. If you're a fan of first-person shooters, pre-order this right now. And of course, support our sponsors. It really means a lot to us and the podcast as well. And uh, treat yourself to this. It looks gorgeous. The book's called I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to First-Person Shooters, 1992 to 2002. And you can pre-order that right now for delivery in a couple of weeks' time. And, of course, check out the rest of their books at bitmapbooks.com. And a big thank you to Sam and the team at Bitmap Books for their continued support of our show. Okay, then next, part one of our epic two-part interview, this time going deep inside the world of Infocom and those old-school text adventures with our special guest, Mike Dornbrook. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event then, where we welcome on this week's very special guest. And our guest this week has experience dating right back to the earliest days of the video games industry, working for some legendary companies on some legendary games as well. And hopefully we're going to try and cram as much of that history into the next hour as possible. So let's, without further ado, welcome on our special guest this week, Mike Dornbrook. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Very good, thank you. Now, um, as I mentioned, you know, just the, the breadth of different companies and products and eras that you've worked in. It's just a fascinating history on paper, so I can't wait to get some of your your memories. I mean, kind of going back to, to the early days, then, I mean, I read that you were working for MIT's Lab for Computer Science. I mean, let's start your journey there. What, what kind of led to that then? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. So I think a couple friends of mine who were fairly heavily involved at the lab at that point, Mark Blank and Joel Berez, who... Uh, you know, started had started Infocom, um, among the others who started it, uh, were worried about the fact that I was uh, kind of in a rut. Uh, I was running the film program at MIT, not being paid anything, and just doing some odd jobs on the side. And uh, they, they wanted to uh, get me into something a little more stable. <laughs> so they somehow talked Al Veza, who was running the group uh, that they were involved in to hire me, even though I knew nothing about computers. They said that, uh, that basically it would be a good experiment to get someone who'd never learned a computer language to learn Muddle, which was the language they were working in, in order to be, I wouldn't be biased or, you know, pre-programmed with other ways of thinking. I would learn Muddle from scratch. I honestly think that was a bad uh, <laughs> bad move uh, I was I pretty quickly learned that I was not really destined to be a great computer programmer I don't think the way programmers think I tend to make intuitive leaps and then check them as opposed to dividing problems up into tiny little pieces and then work on those pieces and so uh, one of the things I did very early on was I started complaining about the documentation and in standard MIT fashion they said feel free write new documentation. So that ended up being my primary project as I wrote the primer for Muddle. So you were described as Infocom's original beta tester. I was wondering like how you discovered games and ended up in that role. So one of the reasons they chose me is because I wasn't a gamer. Um, everyone else they knew 
had already played Zork. They had created it on the mainframes at MIT two years earlier, and I had never played it. Um, partly, I just didn't have time. Partly, I didn't like getting addicted to new things. So I, uh, I kind of avoided it. And so, I mean, they knew me fairly well. We were all friends and we were all involved with the film series at MIT and whatever. And so they asked if I was willing to, and I wouldn't call myself a beta tester, really. I was really the only tester and I was, you know, kind of an alpha tester. So we, they were developing it on a remote um, deck system 20 that they were renting from, I think it was from digital equipment actually. And um, I would have to log in over like a 300 baud modem <laughs> and uh, play the game and then report problems that I was running into or even suggestions for things where I felt a problem was just too difficult. And maybe I suggest a second solution, you know, like more than one alternative solution just to make it a little more likely that somebody could actually get past that problem. So, um, you know, I played the game hundreds and hundreds of times to the point where I could literally type my way through it in about 15 minutes. And I would actually dream um, moving through that game. Do you think it made it a bit easier not being a a kind of gamer and, um, you know, made it easier for new players to get involved? Whereas if someone was a gamer, they may have, you know, been a bit more kind of straight into there and uh, a bit more advanced on it. Yeah, I don't know if it was so much a gamer because a lot of the problems were sort of, uh, I don't know, weird cultural references. You know, there's a problem where the solution is to, you know, ring a bell, read a book and light a candle because of the bell, book and candle. And, you know, it was not something that, I don't think I'd ever run across, and I'm not sure that would be a game, uh, gamer-related, you know, reference that they would say, oh, of course, it's Bell, Book, and Candle, right? So there were things like that where I, you know, I was pushing back. Well, that became a big part of what you did, you know, helping users learn how to play Zork and sharing tips. And actually, you founded the Zork user group. So what was the story there, and why did you set it up? So I fairly quickly started pushing Infocom as I was testing the game. And as they started uh, selling, well, they started selling Zork 1 and I was then testing Zork 2. We started fairly quickly getting, you know, folks contacting us saying, you know, they needed help. And so I suggested that we provide some help and I was willing to provide a hint service. And so I initially was doing that through Infocom. You know, they were paying me an hourly rate. And I was, you know, typing up answers to folks literally on a manual typewriter using carbons. Um, and uh, we put a little slip of paper in, uh, if you go down through the trap door, and I think you went like one room south or southeast or something from there, there was a piece of paper crammed into a crack in the wall. If you pulled it out, it mentioned that there was a Heuristic Information for Novice Travelers Service, H-I-N-T-S, and a Movement Assistance Planner Service, M-A-P-S. And if you sent a postcard or whatever to a P.O. box in Cambridge, we would send you further information on how to acquire the hints or the maps. So it was this 
difficult process for folks. They had to find that little slip of paper in the wall. They had to send off to a P.O. box. We then sent them an order form back and instructions on like how to go about it. And then they'd send their questions in with a check to that P.O. box. And then I would answer the questions. So I started doing that and um, was simultaneously applying to business schools because I had concluded that uh, I wasn't going to be a programmer that what I was doing running the film series at MIT, which was by far, by the way, the biggest student activity on campus and the most, uh, we had the deepest finances. I mean, in, in today's terms, uh, adjusting for inflation, probably like a $300,000 a year revenue stream, you know, you know, it was running a business basically. And I concluded that that's what I was interested in and good at, and I should get a credential. So I applied to business schools I got into University of Chicago. Well, I got into some others also, but that's the one I chose and started uh, pushing on Joel and Mark that they should hire my roommate, Steve Moretzky, to take over as tester and doing the other things I was doing, like answering the hints. Mm. Uh, They thought that there were higher priorities, like hiring a marketing person and hiring a salesperson or whatever, before they would consider hiring somebody like Moretzky. And they said, you know, if you think it's such a great idea, we'll sign a contract with you right now. Why don't you just start a company and do it yourself? And I said, okay. (laughs) So we wrote a fairly simple contract. It gave me all the rights to all of their IP other than making games. So I could have written books, I could have done TV shows, movies, anything I wanted with their IP, as long as I paid them 15% of my revenues. And That's so pretty generous. <laughs> went off to, uh, to, you know, I've spent a week at my parents' home in Milwaukee, um, which is just, you know, 90 miles north of Chicago in Lake Michigan, and uh, told them what I was planning to do. I was gonna start this company while I was in business school. And my father had literally just retired, like two or three months before that. And he said, you know, he really didn't have a whole lot to do. Was there a way that he could get involved? And so we talked about it. And I said, well, if you'd like to handle the actual logistics day to day, you know, taking in the checks, ordering, you know, uh, dealing with anything that, you know, needed to be sent out. I was planning to actually become a mail order source for the games in addition to providing these other services. So he agreed to that and uh, sent out the very first newsletter. Infocom had agreed to provide me with all the warranty cards that they had ever received or any other information where they got a name and address. And so they gave me 700 warranty cards. I think at the time they had sold about 4,000 copies of Zork One, gotten 700 warranty cards back. And so we did a mailing. I came home from Thanksgiving from business school and we did a mailing to 700 folks and, uh, 100 of them placed an order, which is an insanely high response rate for direct mail, especially from someone you've never heard of before who's not giving their name or a phone number, just a P.O. box (laughs) telling me to send a check. So we sold 100 copies of Zork 2, which was just coming out, and, you know, I was in business. So I talked the University of Chicago into making me a computer operator so I could get access to the one good terminal they had, which was the computer operator's terminal, which was behind a locked door, so that I could use the higher-end editing uh, software that we had from MIT. I basically brought out a tape with the source code and loaded it into their computer so I could use R mode, because that by that point, I had automated uh, 
answering the hints because they tended to ask the same questions over and over again. And typing those all up was a pain in the ass. So I uh, created a bunch of uh, abbreviations in R mode where I would just type in a few letters and a whole question and answer would pop up. So I could very, very quickly answer these hints. And I was able to answer the hints at the rate of about $25 an hour, which in 1981, I mean, that's equivalent to about $75 an hour now, which is not bad for a student, right? But it was still boring as hell. So I decided I needed to create some sort of a hint booklet and was really struggling with how to go about doing that. Um, I didn't want it to be easily copied. I didn't want it to be easily passed along. I was really worried about piracy. So I wanted something that was semi-self-destructive and not easily copied. And eventually, there's a long story, but eventually came up with the idea for InvisiClues and, and created the InvisiClues books, which just took off. I mean, the uh, sales of those and the profit margins on those were just tremendous. Well, when Zork kind of came to the personal computer, did you see a, a huge boost on it? And also, you know, being on mainframes before, was was it harder for people to kind of get time to actually play games? And what what was the attitude around uh, people gaming on uh, mainframes back then? Well, the mainframe version, um, you know, the computer that it was on was on the ARPANET, uh, was one of the very few nodes on the ARPANET at the time. Um, but the other nodes were at places like Stanford and Harvard and, and various military bases. And, and that computer, which was a you know, multi-million dollar machine, pretty much got taken over by people playing Zork on it from all over the country. There was a, a, somebody once said that uh, Zork coming out cost uh, the, the computer industry a week of productivity at the time. <laughs> so uh, from 77 to 79, that was, or to really to 80, that was the only way it was available. There was a guy at Deck who downloaded, I mean, there was no security on these systems. I mean, anyone could get in and do whatever they wanted. And somebody from Deck uh, downloaded all the source code and translated it to Fortran, which was, you know, unbelievable. Um, and he released it as Dungeon. And so a lot of people played it. At, that spread all over a whole bunch of different computer systems around the world. And so many, many, many people played it as, as uh, not Zork, but Dungeon. But Zork 1 came out in fall of 80, and that was on the Apple II and then TRS-80 Model 1. I forget if they were – I don't think they were simultaneous. I think one followed the other by a couple months, and I can't remember the exact order. I think the TRS-80 might have been first. And it was being sold through a company called Personal Software, which at the same time had acquired uh, VisiCalc. And that became their big seller. And that's what they were focused on. And so as Zork 2 was about to come out, they had a contract that would have included follow-on games from Infocom. They decided they didn't want to be doing games anymore. They were just going to focus on VisiCalc. And they even changed the name of the company to VisiCorp. And so they just gave all the rights and all the inventory back to Infocom to get out of the contract. And so fall of... 81, as Zork 2 was about to come out, Infocom had to decide how they were going to go, how they were going to proceed. And they decided that they would just self-publish. 
So they raised a bit more money from the founders and created the packaging for Zork 1 and Zork 2 and a, you know, a couple of ads and, and launched it. And so that's really what got Infocom going. And most people then played on the various uh, microcomputer versions. I mean, initially Apple II and TRS-80, but fairly quickly uh, they started adding other machines. I mean, one of the big advantages of the way Infocom did things was they wrote a language that was a subset of Muddle that they wrote all the games in, and then they wrote interpreters for the individual machines to run that language. So they didn't have to change the game at all, machine to machine. They just, once they had an interpreter, all the games ran on that machine. So it was a very efficient way of programming these games, and it allowed them to very quickly come out on new computers as they were launched. So we very often had the only games available for a new computer because of the way they went about it. For instance, when the Mac came out, I think you know fairly quickly we had all 12 games running on the Mac, and there was virtually nothing else available for the Mac. So you know, for a while we had a monopoly. Well, you joined Infocom full time and ended up, you know, essentially heading their marketing department. So, what was kind of the story there? Then, how did you end up taking on that full time position? So, they had been trying. They hired a marketing guy who uh, didn't work out and uh, went off and started another actually quite successful company. Um, and then they started looking for somebody to replace them. This was while I was in business school, and they. Uh, they found someone who wanted to wait a few months before starting, and then like a day or two before he was supposed to start, he you know, said, no, I'm not going to do it. And so by then, I was into my second year of business school, and Zork Uzi's group was doing really, really well. And you know, I knew the games inside out. I knew the customers better than they did in many ways because I was dealing with them. And so they decided that it would be better to wait for me to graduate and hire me as the marketing guy than to try to find somebody else in the meantime. So we all agreed I would sell them the Zork Users Group and come back to Cambridge and head up marketing. Well, the adventure genre grew massively as the 80s went along and with the rise of microcomputers. I mean, how did Infocom take on other companies that were around at that time and coming through like Sierra and Lucasfilm Games? Yeah, so uh, I remember one of the... Um, ads that we did, I think it was fall of 83, maybe even a little earlier than that, we really aggressively went after the the graphic adventure games, which were primarily coming from Sierra. And I don't know if you've seen, if you if you do a Google search, I'm sure you can find examples of them, like, would you shell out $1,000 to match wits with this? And it has this blocky, really ridiculously looking character that was all you could do on these computers at the time. And we just pointed out that we weren't wasting the, you know, very limited resources of the computers on trying to do crappy graphics like that. We were pouring it into, you know, more interesting, deeper puzzles and, and more content. And I know um, I'm blanking on his name now, Williams. What was his first name? Sierra's... Uh, CEO. Ken. Ken Williams. Yes, thank you. Yeah. yeah, he wrote us a letter. He was really upset about our advertising campaign, uh, that we were, you know, essentially trashing his games. I mean, we never said anything about his games, but, you know, he was the main purveyor of those sorts of games. He was really upset, and he, he actually wrote in the letter that, you know, we were nearly killing his company. 
obviously, you know, they recovered and they did okay. But um, initially we were, I would say for about the first three or four years, the dominant publisher of computer games. If you, uh, I mean, we have a bunch of these things in our files, but the primary distributor of games at the time was called SoftCell. And they had about 40% of the market overall, I would say. I mean, they were selling to all the ma and pa computer stores, which were the primary retail channels. Um, SoftCell had the, the hot list, which came out every week. And Infocom just dominated that list in the games category. You know, for a while, they had the top 50. They eventually, as they added other categories, they dropped that to the top 30. But, I, you know, I, 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 we have charts where all 12 of our games are in the top 30. And we have, you know, like, you know, three games in the top 10. And we almost always had number one or number two on that list. For a long time, I mean, Invisiclues took over when, when we started selling those uh, independently from Infocom. Uh, they took over the entire book list. There were 10 books, and it was all Invisiclues. So the other book folks complained to SoftSell and said, you know, you should just combine all the Invisiclues into one and let us have some spots on that list. So they did. And then from that point on, Info, uh, Invisiclues was always just number one on the books list. You actually got some massive franchises that you turned into video games. I mean, one that stands out in my mind as an interesting experience, something that was probably the most frustrating game I ever played. I nearly threw my, I had it on the Amiga, and he threw, threw my Amiga 500 out the window several times. And that was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, I imagine that was a massive game for Infocom. I mean, have you kind of got any memories of that project that stand out then? And why was that game so difficult? I could talk for hours just on that. Yeah. So, you know, I was heading up marketing and we get uh, essentially Douglas Adams gets in touch with us and says, I'd like to do Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game with you guys. And I'm like, you know, I was a huge fan of Hitchhikers. So were virtually everybody else at Infocom. Definitely wanted to do that game. I thought it would be by far a number one bestseller. And getting to work with Douglas Adams, wow, you know, <laughs> what could be better, right? Mm. So uh, the problem was that none of the game developers at Infocom wanted to do it. And it wasn't because they didn't like the property. It's because they all had their own ideas about games they wanted to do, and they didn't want to give up a slot, uh, one of their ideas, to do somebody else's, where they figured that person was going to get the lion's share of the credit. And up to that point in time, we had never identified the game author on the packaging. We basically took the position that these were Infocom games, that they were done by a whole, you know, it was a whole team involved, even though there was one key author behind it. We didn't put their names on any of the packaging. And so the way I convinced Steve Moretzky to take on doing Hitchhikers, because he really didn't want to do it initially, was I said, I will give you equal credit. I will make sure you are in the press tour with Douglas. I, may, I will put both of your names on the package. And so he agreed. Douglas was not thrilled that he was getting what he viewed as a secondary game author. He wanted to work with Mark Blank or Mike Berlin. The first Infocom game he had played was Suspended by Mike Berlin. He thought it was brilliant, and he wanted to work with Mike. Well, Mike and... Mark didn't want to do a collaboration. So 
uh, I found Steve as the, you know, alternative. I also thought he was the best choice because he was so good at comedy and I thought he would work really well with Douglas. But yeah, it was quite a, uh, undertaking to actually get that even started. And then Douglas, as he would be first to admit, was the world, a world-class procrastinator. And Steve is the most buttoned up on schedule. You know, he can focus on something and, you know, no matter what is happening around him, he can dive right in and be creative. So he found it really frustrating that Douglas couldn't do that. And um, so it wasn't the easiest collaboration. But at the very end, Steve was really honored by Douglas saying to them that he could not tell what he himself had written versus what Steve had written, that Steve had done such a good job of imitating his style in the things that Steve put in that Douglas couldn't remember what he did versus what Steve did. <laughs> was that difficulty curve complained much by users? Were they, were they getting in touch? Oh, I, oh, definitely. And, and so <laughs> many people would write in saying, greatest game I ever played, how do I get past the you know, and it would be something that was like 3% into the game, like getting the, um, um, now I'm blanking on the, uh, the translator out of the, oh, the babble, the babble fish. Yeah. yeah. How do I get the babble fish? It's like, uh, okay, this is the greatest game you've ever played and you haven't seen 97% of the game yet. <laughs> um, and there were even people who hadn't gotten off the planet earth <laughs> who were writing in, um, I actually made the babble fish problem significantly easier in my feedback on it, because I thought it was way too hard. And mm. it, it, they did accept my input. I made it somewhat easier, but it was still insanely hard. I know, you know if you remember, but there were all these steps to getting the devilfish, right? You yeah. had to uh, deal with the floor cleaning robot, and then there was a flying robot, and you, know, you had to put the mail on the, on the floor cleaning robot or whatever so that and then you had to block the exit panel that it went through such that it it uh, crashed into it and the mail got, went flying up in the air or whatever. Initially, the only thing that worked in terms of overwhelming the up-in-the-air robot was multiple items. And mail, the pile of mail was the thing that worked. So if you put anything else there, that flying robot got it and you were just stymied. And I said, why don't we at least add a hint that the flying robot wasn't overwhelmed by only one piece? Mm. You get an idea. Maybe if I had multiple pieces there, it might be overwhelmed. And so they accepted that and put it in. D Douglas was upset that that was making it way too easy. It, it was still way too hard, as you know. You know, any hints like that were massively appreciated from the players, yes. I speak from uh, personal experience. And I mean, as, as we kind of went into the 80s, obviously Activision took over the company in 1986. And then shortly after, I mean, it was only a couple of years in, in 89 when Infocom closed. So what kind of, in your opinion, caused the, the kind of end of the company? And what were those later days like after Activision took over and, and, until the end of the, the company? Yeah, that was a difficult time. So... As you probably know, Infocom was also working on a business product line. And that was really what most of the founders were interested in when they started the company. There were 10 founders of Infocom. So, you know, there were a few that were focused on games, but I'd say, you know, kind of the majority and sort of the focus of the chairman of the board, Alveza, 
was to get into business products. In some ways, I think uh, some of them even found it almost embarrassing that the company became so well known for games because that wasn't their own, you know, interest or even vision of themselves. Uh, and so, you know, they didn't want to tell their friends that they ran a game company. They wanted to be, you know, doing something interesting with, you know, a, a, a prominent, you know, business product, right? So all the profits that were being made on the game side were being channeled into creating this cornerstone program, which, by the way, was a great program, but it was, I always thought, a mistake. And I, you know, I said this many times before the game, even you know, the business product came out. I thought it was a mistake having them both under the same company, under the same brand name. I said, it's going to confuse consumers when we come out with a business product because it's not at all how they perceive the company. I know you perceive the company in that way, but that's not what the market perceives the company as. And I think it's going to hurt the uh, game side and I think it's going to hurt the business side. And um, I think I was right, by the way. So Cornerstone came out the beginning of 85, was it 85? And got fantastic reviews. Uh, the people who bought it loved it. But that was a year of retrenchment in the tech industry. And we'd had a whole bunch of companies offering to buy us up to that point in time or invest in us. But we didn't really need the money at the time. And, and you know, the board was not very business savvy. They were mostly academics. And they were like, oh, you know, we don't need it now. Let's wait. Well, you know, one of the things you learn in business is when money's available, grab it because you don't know that it's going to be available when you really need it. And when you really need it, they start decreasing their offers, right? Because they can sense that you really need it. So unfortunately, with the downturn in the tech industry that year and the drop in the stock market for tech stocks and whatever, and this fact that Cornerstone wasn't selling quite as well, it was time to go raise money. Well, then the companies that had been offering high values earlier started offering lower values. And the chairman of the board was very upset about that. And he would get all annoyed and walk away, right? And then he'd go back a couple months later when he was more desperate and say, okay, I'll take that offer. And they're like, well, that was then. Now we're only going to offer this. And he'd walk away frustrated again. And so we basically ran out of money. And they had to shut down the Cornerstone project altogether and find a home for the game's business. And there were still people interested in buying that. But, you know, we had a $32 million offer, which, by the way, adjusting for inflation is about $100 million now for the game's mm -hmm. business in the 1984 timeframe. Simon & Schuster wanted to buy us. Um, Simon & Schuster published Douglas Adams', Adams books. They saw that we were selling really well in... Uh, bookstores like B. Dalton and Walden Books at the time. And so they thought that this was a new industry. They should get a foot in that door and that we were the obvious way to do it. They offered a ton of money and uh, the chairman <laughs> turned them down. A year, approximately a year later, you know, when we're desperate, Activision offered $2 million to the shareholders and that's what they took. <laughs> By then, there were a bunch of debts also. So Activision actually had to shell out more like eight because there was about $6 million in debts to pay off. So we got rescued by being bought by Activision. Activision was blowing through the money that they had made off of selling cartridges before the cartridge meltdown in 83 
And they had gone public, I think, in 83 and raised a bunch of money. So they had a pile of money that they were burning through. And, you know, some of that was used to buy Infocom. And they decided they wanted to get into computer games instead of being on the cartridge side of things. And the executive committee that bought us, we got along with great. We liked them. They liked us. But within a year, all of those people had been canned. The founder, CEO, Jim Levy, was kicked out and his entire team was fired. And Bruce Davis, who had been brought in by the board as a consultant, took over. He had been opposed to buying Infocom before it was purchased and was very negative about Infocom. And so we kind of went through a fairly difficult couple of years under him. And, you know, they were running, burning through the rest of their money and had to shut down a lot of operations and consolidate. So one of the things they ended up shutting down was Infocom. But in the meantime, they had done things that really, from my opinion, in my opinion, had hurt us. For instance, we were doing four or five games a year the industry by then, the computers were getting um, better graphics and more memory and better CPUs. And so the expectation of what would be in a game was moving up. And, you know, on the marketing side of things, we were saying, we need to invest more in the new titles. We need to do more in order to be competitive. But he was pushing us to spend much less on each game. And he wanted us to do eight games a year instead of four with the same staff. So, you know, we were being pushed in pretty strongly in a direction of cutting back on what we were putting in instead of adding more. And that was a death spiral. Um, the other thing he did was half of our sales came from our older titles. And those were the that's where the real profits came from. It's kind of like the book industry where your backlist is where you really make a ton of money uh, and you use that to try to, you know, do a bunch of experiments and hope to create another title that makes it to the backlist that's, a, you know, an ongoing sales success. So that's how we ran the company. That's how we did our marketing and everything. He decided that anything older than about a year should just be pulled off the shelves and, and more room made for new titles. But that really hurt our whole business model. And so I don't think we ever really recovered from that. Well, in uh, 1994, the kind of multimedia age was in full swing and you ended up co-founding Boffo Games with um, Steve Moretzky. Um, what, what was the kind of focus of that company and uh, what was the story there? So Steve had been doing some games for a company called Legend. Uh, Bob Bates had started Legend. Bob had done... I think two games for Infocom as an outside uh, contractor. Um, so he did, I know he did Arthur and I think he did one other and I'm blanking on that. But um, Bob, when Infocom shut down, started Legend and then did a deal with Steve for Steve to do some games for Legend. So Steve did the spellcasting series and um, Superhero League of Hoboken uh, for Legend. And, you know, he was enjoying what he was doing, but Legend wasn't doing particularly well. Steve was not making, you know, a, a, you know, a terrible amount of money working for them. And he had, you know, the vision of it's, you know, it's time to start another company. And so he asked me if I would be willing to help him do that. And I was. So 
we got the company started by, I saw an article in the press that uh, MediaVision, which was one of the early CD-ROM hardware companies. And the CD-ROM companies, if you remember, were bundling a lot of games and software with the CD-ROM when they sold the, you know, several hundred dollar piece of hardware. They concluded that, you know, I think they were paying something like a dollar a game and then, you know, putting a million copies of the games, you know, in with the CD-ROM. They took the point of view, hey, we could, we could actually create our own games for less than we're spending on uh, all these licensing fees. Uh, not realizing that they were able to pick and choose from the, you know, one in a thousand games that actually succeeded. Um, and then now, now we're going to get in the industry where they were taking that one in a thousand risk on creating those games. And so they announced in the press that they were putting $50 million aside to start publishing games and that they'd hired uh, a team of folks. And um, they mentioned who was on this team. And I said, ah, you know, I know that guy. So I got in touch and said, hey, if you're heading up this, you know, new team to create games, we're starting this company. How would you like to talk to us about working with us? And they immediately agreed. Steve and I flew out to California to meet with them. And back in that period of time, there was a Saturday night stayover discount on airfares. It was kind of aimed at you know, business travelers didn't want to give up their weekend, but, you know, more casual travelers would be willing to, you know, give up part of the weekend in order to get a discount. Well, Steve and I, starting a company, were perfectly interested in discounts. So we flew out on Saturday for a Monday morning meeting and spent Sunday down at Disneyland. It was like 80 degrees and gorgeous. And we, of course, coming from this was January, I think, 18th, 1994. Santa Ana winds, beautiful weather. We'd come from you know, freezing cold Boston, we didn't even have, you know, short sleeve shirts with us. So we're walking on Disneyland, <laughs> dying of the heat with all these people going by in shorts and flip flops. And uh, the next morning at like 530 in the morning, the earthquake hit. And we were not wow. far from the epicenter from the Northridge quake. I thought we were dead. You know, I didn't think a building could stand that kind of shaking and not fall down. But later that day, we managed to get together with the folks who are all coming in and telling their stories about, you know, what they'd gone through that day. And Steve started in on his 21 game ideas. Now, as a marketing guy, I always said, just pick one and sell them on it. <laughs> you know, they don't want to hear 21 ideas because they can't choose between them. They want to know what you think is the best but, you know, it's really hard to control Steve. So he went through his 21 ideas and some of them get pretty crazy. They went off and huddled and came back and said, all right, we'd like to do 11 of those. <laughs> how would you like to get your company going and how quickly do you think you could do what? And so Steve and I huddled for a little bit and we said, OK, we think we can do one small one in year one. We can do two in year two and three in year three. And they said, okay, we'll sign the contract right now for a you know, six-title deal with you. They handed us a check. We had mm -hmm. nothing in writing. We, but they said, look, because we had not raised a, uh, any money at all, and we had no employees, we had no equipment, we had nothing. They said, go back to Boston and start buying equipment and start hiring people, and we'll get the contract done within a month. 
So they did. They got the contract done. We started working on Hodge and Podge. And we, um, about a month or two later, started seeing headlines in the Wall Street Journal, SEC and FBI investigating media vision. It was like, oh, no. <laughs> Their stock dropped from like 44 to 4 in a matter of days. They had the shareholder lawsuits. Turns out the execs, not the guys we were dealing with, but the higher execs, had completely cooked the books. They were moving inventory from warehouse to warehouse and calling it sales. They had completely uh, fraudulently raised money on Wall Street. I mean, they ended up going to jail. Mm -hmm. So the company was killed, but our game was far enough along that they sold it. But of course, the company that bought it very soon afterwards had a complete reorganization. And the new management said, why did we buy this? So they, they launched it, but without a lot of backing. And we kind of went through that several times at BAFO. We, we did a deal. We did, I did a, a talk at the game developer conference once about kind of how difficult it is to get a game company going and pointed out that even with somebody as you know, prominent and successful as Steve Moretzky, uh, it's not easy. And I pointed out we did 16 handshake deals for, for games with different uh, companies where they said, we've got a deal, Go, you know, we're going to do this. Ten of those became letters of intent. Six of those became contracts. Two of those actually made it to market. <laughs> and um, there's a lot of stories behind all of that. But it's not an easy industry to be in. These companies often end up reorganizing. We did a deal with Time Warner where I thought, okay, how you know it's a $30 billion company at the time. It's not going to go under on us. But you know, a year into working on the game, they shut down Time Warner Interactive completely, fired all the people, and killed all the games. So even with a company as solid as that, you're, you don't know what's going to happen. And I imagine by this era, I mean, you know, we're talking mid-90s, you know, CD-ROM is the main delivery of games and the games are much bigger than they were on floppy disks i imagine the resources to make these titles and the teams you needed must have been much bigger than they were in the 80s for oh, example absolutely i mean in the 80s we were dealing with i mean zork one and the first games at infocom we had to fit in 81k i mean a postage stamp size graphic these you know on a computer game these days is more than that right so the entire 40 hour game ran in 81k and with 32K of memory, by the you know time period of like Spacebar, which came out in what, 97, that game was on three CDs, three 650 megabyte CDs. So it was like a little, you know, just almost two gigabytes. So, you know, what is that? Uh, 2,000, 20,000, 25,000 times the size of Zork 1 <laughs> um, <laughs> in terms of, of uh, just disk space. And yeah, we had a whole team of, of, you know, we had several programmers, an outside art firm working with us, an outside animation firm working with us. Um, yeah, you needed whole teams even then. I mean, nowadays, I mean, you can have teams of hundreds or even thousands working on a game. I mean, they, they can cost hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to produce. But, you know, that, that was a couple million dollar uh, game development cost. In Infocom days, it would be one implementer, you know, spending about a year 
And then, you know, the overhead associated with it of testing and marketing and whatever. But I was uh, basically accounting in the early days at Infocom for about $300,000 per game to get a game finished. And that was way more than our competitors were spending. We were definitely, uh, a lot of that was also, though, in the marketing side of things. I mean, the actual game development part of that was probably, you know, 100000 or less. Well, you mentioned Spacebar as that as well then, and that was a, a very unique mixture of like adventure, puzzle, and humor. Um, what's the story behind that game? Um, it was one of the 21 ideas that Steve uh, uh, threw out from day one. I mean, he, he had a whole bunch of uh, incredible ideas. I mean, he had a great, great storyline for a Titanic game, and we actually pitched that before even knowing that Cameron was doing a movie, uh, had it picked up by Broderbund. Um, and uh, unfortunately then, you know, that, that also ended up falling through, but, um, we pitched space bar. I'm trying to think the exact time frame. I think it would have been probably late 94 and Microsoft said yes. And we had a handshake with Microsoft who was at the time, probably the best publisher of games in terms of, you know, you could count on them coming through. They didn't cancel things arbitrarily. They actually paid milestones on time and they had never launched a game that sold less than 300,000 copies, which was a big plus, right? Um, So we had an agreement with Microsoft. I flew back to Boston and the next day, Steve met the rocket science guys and he told them about Spacebar. And Ron Cobb was one of the founders of Rocket Science. Ron, uh, early claim to fame was he was a comic book, a comic strip producer or artist for a free newspaper in San Francisco. You can imagine how much money somebody like that ends up making, right? So you know, mm. he, had, you know he was a starving artist but he apparently was really good at creating aliens in that comic strip. So this up and you know coming uh, uh, movie uh, producer in the Bay Area had decided that he kind of his film was lacking something, and he went to Ron and said, "Could you create like a bar scene with a whole bunch of aliens in it?" And Ron said yes, and for one thousand dollars, Ron Cobb created the cantina scene in Star Wars. Now, (laughs) you could say, wow, he was really underpaid, but it did make his name. And so he got a bunch of other gigs. And one of his gigs was uh, Steven Spielberg, who's a friend of Lucas, had him do uh, significant work on E.T. and gave him one point of E.T. So he made many, many millions of dollars just on E.T. And he did quite a few other uh, projects. Uh, I don't know if any of them did as well as E.T. did, but but he did a bunch of work for Cameron. Like he did, um, he was an art director on Aliens. Um, he, I forget all the other films he worked on. But anyway, Steve met him, decided that the space bar, Steve had already sketched out all the aliens in the, in the game and had written like a one-page description of them and their culture and their, you know, their, their place in the universe. But meeting Ron, he said, 
Ron is going to do so much better job of then taking these the next step than anybody else. I want to work with with uh, with rocket science. Well, my reaction to that was, you know, the business side of things was, but we have a deal with Microsoft that is guaranteed to sell, and rocket science has never put out a game. They're you know, they're a startup. Who knows how long they'll last? Who knows if they'll even be around long enough to get the game out? Uh, but Steve was convinced, and you know, you got to kind of go with the creative sometimes. So I had to call Microsoft and say, "Terribly sorry, but we're going somewhere else." And they said, "Are you crazy? We've never sold less than three hundred thousand copies of any game." And I said, "I know, I know. Don't rub it in. I hope <laughs> you'd still consider working with us in the future." Uh, and we went with Rocket Science, and by the time we were finishing the game, they were running out of money, and so they sold the game to SegaSoft. And you know, by that point, we were pretty much convinced that three strikes were out. I mean, having three publishers go under on us um, was just one too many, and so we wound down the company. So I know the space ball was a bit of a cult classic these days, and you know very well received and reviewed back in its time. I did hear that the game is getting a re-release as well. So what's kind of happened here and why bring out a new version of it in 2022 and what's going to be new in this new version? Yeah, so it's kind of a surprise for us also. Um, I don't know, probably about six months ago, maybe a little longer, we got contacted by Bernie Stoller, who's kind of an industry legend. I think he was the original... Sony exec who launched the first PlayStation. And mm. I, I know he had a number, a number of other roles, but he ended up um, CEO of SegaSoft. And so he was there when they bought Spacebar from Rocket Science and launched it. And I have to admit, I you know kind of lost contact with him. But earlier this year, he got in touch and said, you know, SegaSoft wound down in 2000. And uh, the rights to Spacebar reverted to you. Well, actually, that was news to us. <laughs> we actually got a lawyer involved and kind of dove into it and realized, oh, I guess they did revert to us. And since, since uh, Bavo had never really uh, kind of completely, and we'd never gone bankrupt, you know, the, it turns out legally the shareholders of Bavo, which were just the three of us who founded it, legally owned the intellectual property of Bafo still, and that reverted to us. So to our surprise, we, you know, we owned Spacebar. And um, Bernie said, I'm working with this, uh, this guy, uh, Jordan Freeman, and um, he's taking some of the classic games and relaunching them. And Spacebar has always been a favorite. We would like to relaunch Spacebar. And we were you know, thrilled and amazed. And really, can you do that? Can you get it working on modern machines? They said, yes, we can. And so we had, you know, I mean, the original three CDs have virtually everything you need in order to make it work. We had some additional stuff in our own files that they were able to make use of. For instance, we had a much higher resolution uh, version of the intro movie um, then was able to be put in the game back then. And so, you know, we, we provided that and hope, you know, we, we've, we found some other things in the files that, that they're going to be able to include, but it's pretty much the same game 
I know as of a few days ago, I could play it. I haven't actually tried doing that yet. And hopefully it's going to be uh, launched fairly soon. Uh, it just kind of has to get through a few, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty much debugged already, but it'd be good to have, for instance, Steve Moretzky play through it and make sure we're, we're happy with it before we give them the go ahead. Well, that's very exciting news. And I think, you know, it's always amazing when kind of cult classics like that are opened up to a wider audience and even new generations coming along and being able to discover them as well is, is really exciting. So, um, yeah, that's definitely amazing news. So we'll link up um, any information on that in the show notes as well. Now, I think, you know, Mike, from what we've talked about over the last hour or so, for a lot of people, that would be kind of their entire career summarised. But obviously, there is much more that you've worked on. So if you don't mind joining us next week, we'd love to go into uh, more detail about maybe some uh, some games that people may have heard of. Guitar Hero and Rock Band, to name but a couple. I'd be happy to. Fantastic. Well, we'll speak then. All righty. All righty.